All right, so you guys know that we are in week four. Our topic is sex in the body of Christ. Tonight, we are addressing the whys. Before we do that, you guys know that our new feature is kind of a survey of what's news in the uh, Christian world. This guy's name, I'll give you his name, maybe you'll tell me what he does. His name is Anthony, Anthony Flew. Anyone know who he is? He is actually a doctor, PhD. Anthony Flew is probably the most renowned philosopher advancing atheistic views. Since the age of 15, when the man realized that he was a genius and he was too smart for God, he has been on the leading forefront of atheist arguments and arguments against the existence of God. This picture, obviously, is not when he's 15. He's now 81. He has spent his life teaching philosophy. He is probably, like I said, the most respected and around philosopher on atheism and a few months ago, he made it the most amazing statement. And it shocked most of the philosophical world because he, a few months ago, renounced his atheism and is now adopting, although he's not adopting the Christian God yet, he has now adopted a view that based on all the philosophical evidence that he has seen and the apologetical evidence, basically from creation science and intelligent design, that he's concluding that there really must be some sort of intelligent being or God in the universe. Why do we bring this up? Well, because you guys know we spent 12 weeks walking through science and religion, and many of the arguments that you read about Flu right now, about why he's changing his mind, were many of the same arguments that we walked through in our CD series. If you guys want that, there's 10 CDs on reconciling science and the Bible. He actually... uh, states who the influential people were that changed his mind, it's pretty shocking to the world. And there's a lot of people right now from the atheistic community who are responding by saying, well, of course, he's 81, he's about to die, so that makes it all the more different. That's why he suddenly found God. I would submit to you that if you've been a staunch atheist your whole life, even according to him, he basically is saying things that other people are saying, I'm not looking for an afterlife, but I really do believe. I mean, he doesn't believe in an afterlife yet. But he really does believe that the evidence points to God. So just one of those things I thought I'd throw out to you. You know, we spent so long on science. Some of you are wondering, like, am I going to get credit in college for this course? And the others of you are wondering, like, why are we spending so many weeks talking about this? I guess this is the proof. While we can't preach and argue people into the kingdom of God, it's amazing that a guy like this who has this kind of brain needed those kinds of arguments to finally find God. Now, he's still dialoguing with philosophers like J.P. Moreland and a whole bunch of other people as they're trying to challenge him that maybe it's not just God, but it's actually Christ who you should be looking for. And he admitted recently in a debate that there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than there is for any other religion in the world. But he still doesn't think that Jesus was resurrected. He just admits that the evidence is more compelling than it is against it. So kind of keep tuned to this story. Maybe if you stick around, you might see this guy eventually just come full circle and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. You know what? The evidence is just too compelling. There must be a God. So anyway, more of the in the news in the Christian world. All right, here's where we've been. In our first week, we covered the statistics about sexuality both outside the church and inside the church. The sad truth we discovered is that the sexuality inside the church, same as outside the church. We talked about the failings of all the purity programs. We talked about love weights or true love weights and how they surveyed all the people who took the pledge and found out that it didn't really make much of an impact. Rather than waiting for marriage, they just waited an extra 18 months and then kind of let the heat of passion just take over and that wasn't making a difference. 
The last couple of weeks we've been covering lies and rationalizations that we use to justify our sexual immorality in the church. That's CD number two that I would highly recommend you get if you don't listen to any other because it's pretty compelling. I think what we did was we called out those things as lies and rationalizations and they really rung true that way as lies and rationalizations. I think it was a very convicting talk. Last week we spent a lot of time talking about looking but not touching. You know the adage in society, it's okay to look but don't touch, but here's what people are looking at. We talked about magazines, fantasizing, the internet, chat rooms, movies, strip clubs, all the ways you can technically look but don't touch, and basically the sexual impurity of those kind of tactics. Our challenge is the same. We still haven't resolved it. Why is Christ having so little impact on the sexual behavior of those in the body of Christ? I'm hoping that we've got two more weeks. We've got some answers already on the board that we're going to look at. Tonight, we're going to take it a step deeper. But the question that's overriding our whole talk is not, we're not here to talk about are you below the belt, above the belt, and hot zones and all that. We're just talking about, we know what the Bible says. We know what its commands are about chastity. We understand what Christ said. I think we do. That's not making any impact. Sermons, books, I mean, there, there's plenty of them. Next slide, our theme verse for this topic. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We've talked over the last couple weeks that our challenge in this verse is enormous. Holiness is a word that describes God. Holiness is perfection, purity, sinlessness. And yet the commandment we have is to be holy. Okay, sounds good. We hear it, but it's not making any impact. We talked last week about being a new creation. We talked about this verse from 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We talked about the idea that we are supposed to be renewed and new creations. But the sad truth about us, if we really want to just strip it down is that we do not give up this area to God nearly enough. There are far too many Christians who are in the church who even believe in Christ, profess his name, and at the same time think, you know what, but in this one area, I can't give this up. This is my area. Don't touch this area. The consensus we built so far, and I don't think anyone's contradicted it, is if you're going to ask the number one reason that Christians are having sex in the church is because they want to. Not because of any crazy reasons like in the chastity books like, Well, if you go to a certain point, you know, men are like an automatic robot. You just press the button, they just go all the way. They just can't stop. Or because, as one book said, it's because men have a goal to just hit it with every woman. (laughs) Who's writing this stuff? Or because it's the media. It's their fault. We talked about that in the first week, how bad the media's impact is on us. But we still have choices. We're still people. We're supposed to have discipline. Here are the reasons that we've thrown up so far on why Christians are having sex outside of marriage. Top reasons we've come up with as a group so far and based on the research we've looked at because our loved ones are close by and God seems far away. It's an honest answer. You know, the whole like, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. So we just take that to kind of an extreme like, I know I love Jesus, but he's just so far away and heaven is far away and everything's far away and the person that's next to me, I love that person, so I'm going to do what I want. Here's the other reason, although we know it's wrong, we never discuss why it's wrong. We're going to do that tonight. Finally, we're going to talk about why it's wrong tonight. I think most of the books I've read just don't go far enough explaining why. Just because God said no? Because we refuse to yield control of this part of our lives to Jesus. 
I think if we're actually honest with us, with ourselves, I think we know that that's part of it right there. Or because we're immature in our relationship with Christ, we are not truly renewed. If we were really a new creation, this wouldn't even be an issue. But we're not. We're kind of like partial new creations. We're new creations in certain areas. We talked about, like, we have this sin management diet we seem to be on. That if, like, you're really good in one area and you're okay, then you can, like, sin over here a little bit. Kind of like cheating on the diet because you worked out the whole week. You know, like, I'm doing good on forgiveness, and I'm doing good on prayer, and I'm doing good on quiet time with you, and I'm really not mean to other people, and I'm giving, and I'm tithing, and I'm spending, like, time with fellowship and accountability. So it's not going to really matter if I spend an hour, like, on the Internet watching porn because I'm so good in every other area. I need to send somewhere. I need an outlet. All the rationalizations we talked about last week, like, well, it's better to just go ahead and do it once and just think about it all the time because you think about it so much more than you do it. Or the, I love this person and God knows that he's going to be okay with it because we're going to get married. He knows that. Last one on here is, I think the one we've all agreed is probably the most compelling. We just want to. When you're confronted with a choice to sin, you think, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And that's really the saddest one of all. It doesn't answer why we want to, but I think the reasons we want to are pretty varied. Everyone has their own reasons. I think some people do it because they think, well, some people are like, I just want to see naked people. I mean, if you're on the internet, for example, and you're following like some sort of line of sexual impurity, you're just like, I'm just, I just want to lust. That's why. Other people are like having sex in the church because out of a genuine desire for intimacy, they love the person. It's, they just really want to break down that wall of intimacy and say, I, I think it's okay. I mean, I know what I'm doing. Some of them are because people have low self-esteem. Some of them are because past abuse is a factor. Some of them are because they've already done it once and they feel like there's no reason to stop. They view virginity as a pure on-off switch. It's like once in, it's enough. You know, I'm too far gone. Guilt, lack of ability to find redemption. Then there's all the rationalizations that go on top of it, like God created us to be sexual beings. I'm just acting out the way God wanted me to. Or we get married so much later now than people did earlier, so I have to like manage this problem a little tougher. But I really think that as the group has developed over the last two or three weeks and analyzed each one of those things, the real truth that keeps ringing out more than all of those things is in every single circumstance that you have one of those pressures pushing. I mean, it could just be because the media flashes 14,000 images of sex at you per year, okay, which is the average that they're talking about. So, like, it could be that. You could blame anything you want, but in the end, when you're looking at the person or when you're deciding that you want to do something, one of the things we identified is that sex is one of the few... I don't, sex, I'm putting in quotes because it covers all sorts of sexual impurity. is one of the few sins that you have to move about on a course of action to accomplish. I mean, you have to think about, this is what I'm about to do, and you have to intend to do it, okay? I don't think any of us agree, like... If you start kissing heavily from that point, boom, it's going all the way to intercourse. There's no way to stop it. I don't believe that. That's just, that's just, that's a 1960s view of sexuality as opposed to a more modern view of like, look, if you're talking about sexual impurity, like going to a strip club, let's just take that one for example. You have a hundred ways before you get there to get out of that. I don't think that any Christian accidentally ends up in a strip club. I don't think any Christian accidentally buys a porno magazine. You have to go out of your way to do it. Jillian. But sex itself, I mean, you're making out with someone. Sometimes it just happens, it just leads up into it. That's why I said I don't want to generalize 100%, but I would venture to tell you that probably the vast majority of people can stop themselves at any point. This is not one of those things where if you press the button, it's like from 0 to 60 and there's no stopping in between. 
Um, if you guys believe that, challenge me on it. That's why you guys are supposed to talk back. But I really just believe that there's a few people who just can't help it. But I think for the most part, I'm even talking on behalf of guys. I think guys will tell you that it's just a total myth that, oh, once you get a guy going, there's just no stopping him. It's just not true. You're deciding I want to go further. I want to go further. I want to go further. I want to push this envelope. I want to see what happens. And then you know what I'm going to do after I've done it? I'm going to say it was the heat of passion. That's just a justification. I think that it's like all I think it stems back to what Adam and Eve all you know, knowledge. They had knowledge of sin of everything out there in the world. And so from then on, our human nature is to want it. Okay. The reason all these programs haven't been working, I think, is because no one's ever identified the core problem, which is that we just want to. And you said correctly, I think, that if people want to, there's nothing that's going to stop them. Okay. I totally agree. You guys remember last week we talked about the girl that came and was counseling with me about I'm having sex and I want to stop. And she was so mad at me when I didn't tell her. Like I didn't give her all these hundreds of verses and exhort her. I just said, when you are done sinning, you will stop. Because you love the sin too much right now. And I know you. You know the verses better than I do. You're a missionary kid. You grew up in the church. I don't need to preach to you about the immorality of having sex before marriage. In fact, that's the reason you're here. Because you're actually enjoying the guilt for a moment. Because you're not done. You still love it too much. But one day when you wake up and you can't believe you're doing this, you will stop. Yeah, honey. But like, you know how the divorce rate is slightly higher inside the church and outside? Well, that has effect on people's sexuality as well. Broken homes, having a father. That's why people in the church are having sex. Okay, Angela. I, I agree with me that we need to deal with the deeper issues of just people wanting to because they want to because of attention, because they're looking for the thrill. I mean, can we escape place that thing with something else? Maybe sleeping around okay now i feel like we're finally starting to make progress and maybe this is the reason so far the deepest we've been able to get in this discussion is what i consider the first revelation is you'd be hard pressed to go to any church on a sunday morning where when someone says why is the church having sex everybody stands up and go could we want to <laughs> no one's going to do that none of the books on chastity that i'm reading get to the level of saying that it's because we want to not because the media is beaming at us or all this. Okay, but what you're doing is you're reversing the question on its head, which I like, because maybe the reason we want to has even deeper reasons. And if we get down to those, exactly. maybe that will make an impact on us. But tonight, what I want to do before we dive into that is I want to look at the real question that we've never answered is, why does God tell us not to have sex? Okay, because that's another thing that seems to be very short on going around in the church. The theology behind it is missing somewhere. And, you know, our goal here is to go deeper, go deeper than other people go. So we've hit one level, I think, that's deep. But let's go a little bit deeper before we answer the root reasons maybe for that, okay? I want to look at that question carefully. And you guys, I need your help tonight, okay? These are the reasons that I think we've identified so far that I think most people will agree upon that God tells us it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage or to engage in any type of sexual impurity. All right. Again, we're going to lump it into the subject of sex, but don't keep it to premarital sex. Think about all sexual impurity, okay? whether it's adultery or all the stuff we talked about, internet pornography, regular porn, all the stuff, movies, whatever you want, reading Maxim magazine, whatever. These are the things that I think we can identify. I need you to fill in the blanks. It harms us physically. How does it harm us physically? You want to throw in some answers? STDs. STDs. I'm going to throw it out in church, sexual toys and stuff. Our expert on sex toys, what's the answer? <laughs> Our sexual expert. Studies do show that. Studies show that if you are active with sex toys... You cannot achieve an orgasm. 
gather with your husband. Can you believe all these words we're saying in church, Anthony? This is ridiculous, man. So we're going to edit all these out of the tape. It ruins the experience you're supposed to have in that intimate setting of marriage. All right, let me make this clear. I don't think there's any church stance against sex toys, first of all. Let's say at least in marriage, you know, I think most things are permissible. I know a number of people who actually counsel married couples that if you're having trouble, like, you know, it's sexual function, that might be a way to help. But the point here that we're making is separate. We're talking about outside of marriage. If the problem is you're finding ways through the use of, like, great modern machinery, okay, (laughs) to do things that are not humanly possible, then the correlation will be true. Humans will not be able to match the great modern marvels of machinery when they become your husband or wife. Okay? So physically, there could be something that's altered um, in, our, in our physiology and our ability to enjoy sex the right way. There are studies that say that sex in young women below a certain age is harmful, actually. Okay? I think the age is 14. Okay? can lead to cervical cancer and other problems. The act of sex is, by its definition, a physical act. God knows in our biology that this act in particular is going to yield results. Otherwise, he would not have ordained it this way. All right, if you really stop and think about it, the whole act is goofy. It really is just about as strange of a thing as you can get two people to do. If we didn't enjoy it so much, somebody would stop and think, what on earth are these people doing? (laughs) But God designed it for a reason. It's probably the most awkward and yet intricately intertwined thing that people do. The physical act is meant to create not only the other things that we're going to talk about, emotion and mental things, but it is meant to have a physical effect. Now, I'm not talking about the physical pleasure alone, although that's one part of it, but it is meant to create a physical bond. If you guys doubt that things have physical bonds, think of the last time someone told you the worst news of your life. Think of the last time you broke up with somebody where you were like laying on the floor like somebody just punched you in the stomach. I mean, nothing physical happened to you, right? But yet all of our bodies and our emotions and our physical nature are intertwined. That means the reverse is true. If an emotion can do that to your body physically, it is true that God designed a physical act to do something to you, which we'll talk about in a second, emotionally and mentally and even spiritually. But just the act itself creates a physical bond that does hurt you when it's broken. Now, most of us tend to identify that on the emotional scale. But the reason I think that's not entirely true is from studies and from experience, when you break that physical bond, it hurts more than if it just didn't exist and it was just an emotional bond. It takes the pain to a different level. It takes the destruction that it does our hearts to a different level. Mentally, how can it hurt us mentally? Self-like, your self-esteem, like mentally how you feel about yourself. Okay, self-esteem, which is a factor probably in why people have sex and then it becomes a cycle because then they lose their self-esteem when they're doing it at the same time. Yeah. Well, let's say when you can set your attitude and you break up and... You, as a, as a girl, you start to feel like, okay, well, did you find something better? Am I inadequate now? Or is it just getting old? Or you start to feel worthless, like, oh my gosh, I'm damaged good. There's no good Christian man out there who's going to want to be because I've already been with, like, two guys. Okay, which I hope you identify as a lie, but at least you're saying, you're understanding that, right, I mean, but you're cycling that through yourself. Yeah, I mean, at some point, I'm sure I went through that. Okay. 
So it damages you mentally in that way that you're actually starting, I mean, again, you're losing your esteem and you're starting to feel that you're less worth it because of that. It could awaken something in you mentally and physically that was asleep. I'm sure it's harder to stop after you've been there. Maybe it makes you start thinking about it all the time or makes you want it and you physically crave it or need it. Yeah, mentally, this can become an addiction or it can awaken desires that you didn't even know. Ben? Over time, that's destroy your creative abilities. Yes. All your, all your power goes into that. All your mental passion goes into that. So you just lose all the other pathways. Well, fantasizing can become destructive because you're creating fantasies that may not become true. That may be mentally harm you. And yes, it does affect your creativity. For those of you who need another reason not to engage in fantasizing, you guys know that for each one of these talks, we put in so much research. And one of the topics I was researching, I was just researching the topic of fantasizing, and I came across an article that says they were doing studies on Alzheimer's research and finding that people who tend to daydream and fantasize more are more likely to end up having Alzheimer's. So, if you guys are fantasizing, better get it in now because you're not going to remember it later. So if you didn't need any other reason... Hear me on this. I'm not saying God told us don't fantasize because you might get Alzheimer's. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, I read a study that, that men that look at pornography regularly have a hard time getting aroused in an actual situation. That's not just a study. You know, I know guys who've been in this. Um, you guys know, I probably talked to my buddy who is like the world's greatest collector of porn. And we worked at the law firm together for many years. And he has a collection that just rivals anybody you've ever seen. All right. <laughs> And he's so good at it, you could show him a picture of any naked woman, he'll tell you what the name of the porn star is and where she's appeared. I mean, he's just like, some people about baseball stats, he's about that like porn. We would have a lot of conversations about pornography in between our witnessing efforts about Jesus. And one of the things that I realized about him that was very clear, and he's a normal guy, by the way, he's not like some weirdo, or he's not a serial killer or a psychopath, but he just said, you know what? Over time, the reason he collects more and more and more and more is because it takes more and more and more and more for him to get off. I mean, at first he could like see a few images. Now he's literally got to click for hours to get through these images. To, for, to, and that is because he's seen so much that mentally things don't stimulate him anymore. I mean, he sees things that would probably stimulate any normal person, and he's got to go further. And by the way, not only further in quantity, but in graphic nature. You know, he needs to keep going further and further into more and more graphical things. Wes? At that point, though, it follows the pattern of addiction. It's like anything else if you need more and more to reach the desired level. It does. It does reach the pattern of addiction, except I noticed some things in him that he can go for, like, weeks without looking at it. But when he wanted to, his tolerance level for it. It's like an alcoholic. I mean, some people, like, they drink every day, and that's how you measure their alcoholism. Other people, it's because their tolerance has reached such a high level because of their drinking that even though they drink only once a week, they got to drink, like, three bottles to get drunk. You still have a problem. It's just a different nature of the problem. Ben, you had a comment? We read a study that said it's only heroin's more powerful. Only heroin's more powerful than sexual addiction? Oh, true. Okay. Well, the chemicals involved. So these addictions do affect you mentally. I was going to say, like, there was a really, like, long, intricate study done, and they're trying to figure out why, like, serial killers kill people. And they try to look for something in common, social status, broken home, like, anything. And they found absolutely nothing. And the only thing that linked all the serial killers that they interviewed was that they were addicted to porn. And they're saying that most people kill for a sexual reaction. It's a sexual thing. And they started the same way this guy started, and it wasn't enough, and it wasn't enough, and then the, the content got more graphic, 
where it was like the videos that portrayed fake rapes and stuff like that and then they have to go out and actually do it and rape people and then from then it goes even more and more and more so there is a spiral like that guy in 20 years I mean well I will tell you that that guy's been doing it I mean he's 43 now and he's probably been doing it since he was 13 so he's had a good 30 year run at it and he hasn't gotten close to hitting anybody or killing anybody but yeah. I've read the same studies and I guess I'm cautious of them for a reason because I think that while you can trace that as a common trait, I don't necessarily think that anybody who's addicted to pornography will become a serial oh, killer, no, right? So let's just make that statement. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think we've beat this point a little bit about mental addiction to it. There is a physiological function that goes with mental addiction. You guys know that that's either going to, for guys, it's going to mean that you can't perform or you just perform too fast. And there's been lots of studies talking about people who are addicted in pornography end up on two ends of the extreme. And then you've got even more problems that you're bringing into your marriage. You guys haven't even talked about the most obvious ones mentally. I mean, you have these images of people in your head, and then you get married to somebody, and they don't even live up to these images. I mean, these are like easy ones, but you know what? Talk about the most common damaging one there is. Because you're dealing with images that you see all the time. And I know you guys are always talking about the airbrushed images. Let's just talk about regular images. The biggest thing that addicts men to pornography is not the quality of the picture. It's the quantity of the different variations of stimuli. It makes sense? Men are so visually stimulated that after seeing the same woman, i.e. their wife, for a certain amount of time, what they were looking for lustfully is to find hundreds of other people that are different than that. That's what makes it so addicting. And in the age of the internet, it's even more addicting because you know, we talked about the statistics, there's billions of images out there. So if you're a person who becomes mentally engaged in the process of finding varying stimulus, your hunt will never end. There is like an infinite number of pictures you could be hunting down, and that becomes the addiction itself. It's just the quest for variation. Now, this doesn't affect women because women are engaged in other ways than just visually. Not that they're not engaged visually, but it's less of a problem But again, even the statistics in the church showed that a number of women in the church are reporting that they're having addictions with pornography, okay? Primarily looking at other women. So this is a new disturbing trend that we got to deal with. So yes, it has mental effects. Emotional. This one is really obvious. I don't know if anyone wants to do this one, but you know it's probably one of the most damaging ones. Because I think when you start asking God, why can't I have sex, which is really the question we're answering, He's going to quote some physical protections. He's going to give us some mental health protections. But now he's going to really start talking to our heart. Angela. Emotionally, um, you're attached sexually with one partner after the next, and then you have to separate. You're dealing with the attachment, and then you're cutting off the attachment. And every time you cut off such a strong attachment, you know, you're, you're emotionally drained. And so it just becomes a cycle. And it, there is a cycle about people, you know, separating and then reattaching and they can't be satisfied with anything. Okay. Thank you. Or three All right. So we're talking about two ends of the spectrum. Some people who are going to be completely shut off their emotions, and then people who are going to get emotionally attached. Look, there are definitely people, both male and female, who have this incredible ability to be able to have sex and have no emotional attachment. 
I think that's actually one of the greater psychoses of all. Because here's an act that God has designed into our biology to have emotional attachment, and yet these people are able to short-circuit it and circumvent it in some way, which means, by definition, they're doing something wrong. They're doing something almost against God's nature to just be able to do it without any, any attachment at all. It's a very strange thing. Uh, by the way, this is not just true of the physical act of sex. It's especially true there. But it's going to be true of all the other sexual impurity acts that we're talking about. You know, after a while, you become just sexually desensitized, like we talked about, even emotionally. You're going through a habit of, let's say you're addicted to pornography, or you're just viewing pornography for pleasure. Let's not use the word addiction so often. Some people are just doing it because they feel like it's a cool thing to do for the afternoon. You're engaging in an act where you're emotionally have no connection to that person, and yet you're sexually engaged with their image. So again, you're still doing something that's really kind of a nutty thing to do. But let's talk about the majority of people. The majority of people, if you looked at God and you said, Lord, you did make this for our pleasure. I don't understand why it is that you don't want me to do this. I think God in his fatherly advice to us is going to come back and say, don't you understand how much this is going to rip your heart apart? I mean, if you want this to be done, the whole idea is I want you to do it in marriage. Why? Not because it's like an artificial dividing line. It's because I want you to do it with a person, one person. Because it's not meant to be undone. That's the whole idea. I come back to the emotional impact that divorce has on people. Ask yourself this. Is having premarital sex with somebody and breaking up any less of a divorce? Okay, maybe you don't have your checking accounts like commingled. Is that really what makes the issue? You're not having custody battles and splitting apart your houses. But that's not what makes divorce such a hard thing on us. That's not why God tells us not to divorce. He tells it because if it's for our own emotional good. And as Andrew points out, for the emotional well-being of those that we bring into the world. And those that are around us. There is no more traumatic thing. You guys know all the surveys that talk about like what's the highest, most traumatic things that people go through. And God is telling us the same thing emotionally in this case. I'm doing this for your own good. Listen to me about this. You don't know. And there's a lot of things you don't know. You don't know that the person you think you're going to marry, that you're going to marry them. I told you last week, I thought I was going to marry three people in my life. I was saving up to buy the ring for one of them. If I'd use that excuse of saying, God, I just know it's a sure thing, I would have been wrong. And I was wrong. We also don't know how that bond is going to affect us when it's together and when it's apart. The hardest thing to get across to people from a place of experience, I think, is to say to people, hold on to your purity, not just because it's in the technical bounds of what God says. It's because he knows what's best for us. And he's trying very hard to communicate a truth to us that only in his eternal knowledge he knows. And we, in our sinful state, just don't know any better. Through all the experiences I had and all the breakups I went through and all the times that I disobeyed God, when I got my heart back finally to give to my wife, it was a messed up heart. It was scarred so badly. There were things in it that to this day, it still doesn't function the way God wants it to. You, know, you go through enough times of turmoil and breakup in your life that when someone says to you, I will be with you forever, and even when you hear it from your own wife, there's a part of me that's still going... I don't know, I've heard that before. That shouldn't be. 
That's not the innocence that God wants us to have our life and our love with. But that's the heart that I've inherited from disobeying God. That's the heart that I hold on to that I now have to offer to somebody else and say, this is my heart. You know, and thank God that I have such a great understanding wife who could look past those things and understand that, okay, I'm broken and I messed up. But you know what? If I'd asked God from the beginning, he would have said, I got a reason. And now you're starting to understand why. Yeah. Is there a two virgins getting married to The statistics that I've read are if you cohabitate together beforehand, which obviously is the same thing as probably you're having sex beforehand, that you actually have a worse chance of staying married than people who get together for the first time. Um, the reason it's hard to predict statistics about two virgins getting married <laughs> is because it's darn near impossible to find them these days. And that really is the saddest truth of all. We talked last week that there were some stern warnings about intentional sin. And I want to come back to looking at some of those because we had a wrestle with it last time. And this is out of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The reason I bring this verse up to you is you've heard it a lot of time. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But one of the spiritual ramifications is the potential that we would slip away from God. Now, I know that this is going to spark the whole debate we've had over and over and over as we've examined deep topics. Are you going to be able to lose your salvation by becoming sexually immoral? Pick up CD number three. Can you, as Hugh Hefner, be a pornographer your whole life and accept Jesus at the same time and just say, hey, I'm a born-again pornographer? I mean, can you do that? And some people say no, and some people say yes. I'm going to point out to you that in this one, thieves, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers are all in there. These are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, but we know that you will get to heaven and you will see thieves, swindlers, and those guys will be up there. Okay? What's the difference? Is it because they were unrepentant? What's the difference? That's the quality that I want to talk about spiritually for a second. In Matthew 7, 21 and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and this is the favorite one that everybody cites because they're saying, wait a minute, you're going to lose your salvation because not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. One spiritual consequence could be that you end up on the Lord, Lord bandwagon, where you lived your life as an internet pornographer who happened to go to church and tithe 10% of the money you were making on the internet to the church, doing whatever you were doing, believing in Jesus, genuine belief, and the Lord might say to you, hey, I never knew you. Is that what this verse is saying? Yeah. In my heart, like the way my relationship is with God, even without reason, whatever he would say, I would do it. I'd be like, you love me so much, I couldn't even fathom Jesus dying, like all these things God has done in my life. So for me, it is enough, like, don't do it. 
don't do it. I try to give up like as much as I can because I love him. So how can you be a born again pornographer if you continue in the same lifestyle? You have to shut off your love at some point for God and say you're not worth it. Everything different is not worth it enough to stop doing whatever. Okay, Andrew. You take a proactive stance to change things. They weren't following and acting in the footsteps of Jesus. I mean, aren't we all sinners? Are we all sin doers, evil doers? Yeah. Um, I think it's the condition of your heart. Right. That's the important thing. I mean, okay, I know you're giving me that look, but you can't be in tune with God and intentionally try to hurt him. So you can be having sexual sin in your life and earnestly be repentant every single time. Do you think there's a different texture, though, from we all sh- fall short of the glory of God and sin every day to something where there's an intentional desire to sin? Because I think sexual sin is something you set about to do pretty intentionally, except I know we're talking, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, this is an intentional sin. Angela? Sexual desire is inside of us. So having sexual desire is a sin. That's correct. Sexual desire is not a sin. But acting on it is. When it's outside of marriage, sure. All right. All right. We have a technocrat in the background. Well, last week Ryan, who's not here, told us that it's the it's the quality of the struggle that you go through. Like, if you don't struggle at all, maybe God's not in your heart. If you struggle a lot, you know, then then and and, and thinking like, well, that, that's good. I just struggle more. You know, is that the answer? Like, but I really struggled before I turned on the internet and watched it porn. I mean, I really knew it was wrong, and I struggled and I struggled and I struggled for a day, and then I did it. Like, but it was a whole day of struggling. You know, so I'm still in the kingdom. Now, I will tell you in fairness that commentators upon this passage say that this really has to be taken in context in which he's speaking it. It does have harsh words, but the context is more that there are people who are going to teach in his name who don't actually know him. There are going to be people who follow him, quote-unquote follow him, go to churches, sit in churches that don't really believe so that what he's really emphasizing is not just a knowledge of who Jesus is, as you said, but a saving faith. But isn't that what that passage was that we read about? If you really do believe in Christ, you're a new creation. You shouldn't be the same as the old. I guess the reason I'm struggling with you guys so much today is I know plenty of Christians that really earnestly know the Lord and could tell you everything about him who have very little struggle when it comes to sexuality. Just go ahead and do it. My own view of salvation is being not tested, but it's being stretched. Because when I read a verse like this, I honestly ask myself, Am I one of those people who's going to be standing there thinking, Lord, I taught in your name. And I knew all the stuff. He's like, yeah, but you know, you didn't live it out. Or if you did live it out, you didn't even struggle. I mean, yeah, sure, you knew about it. You knew who I was. You knew this book better than a lot of people. And then you went home and just did whatever you wanted to. And for a large part of my life during my 20s, that was a great way to characterize my life. I walked away from the ministry to chase a girl into an impure relationship. And spent my whole 20s trying to like, figure out what I was doing. But the whole time I knew who God was. You know, I wish I could tell you, oh yeah, those were during the years where I walked away from God. No. Oh, yeah. Did you pray? Did you? Well, that's, that's the question. Did I pray? Right. No, because the spiritual consequence I'm going to talk about in a second was still there. Jolene. No, uh, for me, I was also going to church every day. And if, every Sunday, every Wednesday, and probably like a Thursday and a Saturday. And still doing what I was doing. Knowing deep down that it was wrong, but still feeling like like I couldn't get out of it, and that, and you know, afterwards it's that whole God, forgive me of my sin. No, it's hard, and you do that whole 
whole spiel, and it's hard to explain. Do you think during that time you were walking through that that your salvation was in jeopardy? Um, I think the naive part of me did believe that I was, I, I, you know, I was young. Okay. Angela, one more comment. We'll go on. Being addicted to sexuality, a sexual whatever, it isn't a sin because we're not actively doing it. We're being, we're bound in it. If addiction is an illness, then maybe it's against our will. But I want to remind you guys that sin is not limited to things you're not supposed to do. The definition of sin is anything that violates the will of God, even if it's something he wants us to do and we don't do it, or something he doesn't want us to do. So, so I just want to point that out because if you're going to, going to classify addiction as an illness where we are out of control of what we're doing, then I think that may have some mitigating circumstance with what's going on, but it's still a sin. Whether we're in control of the sin or not may be the quality that we're looking for here, this texture that we're struggling with. Because remember the verse out of Hebrews that hit us a couple weeks ago was, if you continue to sin intentionally after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Now, I know that, again, commentators are saying this is dealing with the sin of apostasy, of actually walking away from Christ. This is a similar warning. Now, I'm tempering it by telling you commentators... Put it in context. I'm not saying that you'll lose your salvation so quickly, but it is a stern warning that if we're not acting consistently, or flip that on its head, if we're intentionally sinning, despite knowing that this is wrong, we're kind of in a danger zone. I'm not sure exactly how far you have to go before you hit apostasy. I don't know. All right. I think we got a lot of the point down, but here it is. Can it harm us spiritually? Yes. How can it harm us? Well, we know it gets in our way with God. The last thing you're going to do is have some great morning sex and jump up and have a devotional. All right? It's not going to work. All right? The guilt is going to get in the way. It may have implications on your relationship with God beyond just the fact that it's a sin. These are stern warnings that we've talked about. I can't tell you the parameters. I can tell you what the plain words are saying. Here's what Paul reminds us of one more time. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Addiction. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Definitely a spiritual consequence. What you do with your body is going to have a spiritual consequence, says Paul. Because the body belongs to Christ. It's his temple. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you've received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. You know, when I hear the words, you are not your own, you have been purchased with a price, it reminds me of how much I still need to yield myself to God. I still think that somewhere I own a part of my life, like what I'm going to do sexually and what I'm not going to do sexually is in my hands. It's my choice. And somehow that I'm going to honor God by being good and following his rules. This flips that notion on its head. It's saying, it's not even your body. Christ purchased that body and it now belongs to him. It's for his purpose. 
And what you do with your body sexually infects the body of Christ. That's why this series is called Sex in the Body of Christ. Not sex in the church, not sex in Christianity. Because I want to drive home this point. That the sex that we bring into the church infects the body of Christ. Just like Paul says, as if you were having sex with a prostitute. No, 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 not us. Think about it this way. As if Jesus was having sex with a prostitute. Because isn't that what Paul is saying to us? That if we have been purchased clean and Christ invades and lives within our body and occupies it, that when we sleep with a prostitute, we are becoming one and putting together the spirit of Christ and that person into a oneship that shouldn't even exist. We're polluting the church spiritually. So this isn't all just about people's preferences or their addictions or the harm. We are actually polluting the body of Christ. We are subjecting Christ to humiliating circumstances. Just like it says in Hebrews, we're trampling upon the sacrifice of Jesus. We're making a mockery of it. He purchased us, and yet we're unwilling to yield that part of us to him. When we reach the conclusion over three weeks of talks that we just want to do what we're doing, I was trying to get us to really understand tonight that it does have effects. When we say we just want to do it, which is true, I wanted it now. I wasn't willing to wait till I was married. God was not going to stand in my way. But man, do those things have consequences, you know, emotionally and spiritually. It does have spiritual consequences. I was reading in the Bible this week about other great men of faith, not that I'm one of them. How about Samson? Remember him? He was a judge. He wasn't just a strong man. He was a judge of Israel. He was judging Israel. All the power he had. Where'd it go? To women. You read the story of Samson. It's like he goes after one woman. You know, he does all these things. He's sleeping with a prostitute. And then he meets Delilah. And all of it is about women. You read in the Bible about David, another great man of faith, who's standing around, walking around, looking at like somebody named Bathsheba. That's where we get the word bathtub, by the way. No, I just made that up. <laughs> so she's bathing, and he wants to have sex with her. He has sex with her. He kills her husband. This is a man of faith. King of Israel slayed Goliath, did amazing things, right? What brought him down to his knees? Naked women. It was, it was his lust that brought him down. By the way, after the Lord punishes David for his sin with Bathsheba. They have a son, right? What's his name? Solomon, right? He becomes the king of Israel. Wisest king of the world. What brought Solomon's rule down? His desire to be like all the other kings in the world and have sex with multiple women. All right, I guess here's the point. It does have severe problems for us. Maybe you can sin the rest of your life sexually and God will never take away salvation. By the way, I probably believe that. That God is so graceful and loving that he could look past every dirty sin in our lives and still love us enough to bring us if we accept his sacrifice. But here's the point. Every one of those people fell. Every one of those people had consequences of their ministry that they lost because of their sexual sin. If you want the biggest spiritual impact on your life that sex will have, it's not that you're not going to have a devotional with God. It's not that you're going to feel guilty and walk around. It's that God is not going to use you to your full potential. It's that you're going to lose 10 years of your life like I did wandering around between the time that you're 20 and the time that you're 30 just trying to get back on track to forgive yourself and let God forgive you, although he probably did years ago and I couldn't accept it, to come back and get rid of a lifestyle that I had chosen for myself that was all wrong. 
You know, I'm going to have to account to Jesus for those 10 years someday. When I sit before him on the throne and he says, I gave you these talents, I gave you these things, what were you doing? (laughs) 10 years. That's a spiritual consequence. How many people could you have touched, changed, helped, fed, clothed, done whatever in 10 years? To some of you guys, 10 years is like half your life. To me, it was a third of my life that I gave away because of the spiritual consequence of my decisions made me, for lack of a better word, impotent in the, word, in the kingdom of God. Yeah. A man of faith can do it. What makes you think that we can? Because I think that any time you are dealing with these types of issues, it's not an on and off decision. It's not like you fall off the horse once and you go, you know what, I'm out for the count. Because even David, when the Lord came to him and said through Nathan, you have sinned and sinned mightily. David repented and the Lord said, because you repented and repented so fast, I will spare your life, but your son will die. There's still consequence, but there's a chance for us to redeem ourselves. If you let it knock you out once and for all, then I don't even think that's biblical. You see that the men of faith make mistakes and they rise. You know who I think they got the biggest bum rap in the Bible is Moses. Like these guys committed, these other guys committed huge sexual sins, right? Moses tapped the rock, the rock a little hard and he got killed for it. Man, if he had known, if he had known, he would have said like, you're going to let those guys off with these huge, big concubine sins and all this stuff and I just, because I, it, eh? oh man. All right. We've gone way longer on this than I thought we would. Monique is dying for me to answer this question. We're going to talk about it right after we pray. If you guys want to stick around, I've held you guys long enough here. Let's pray. Lord, this topic is so big, I I feel like we can't even encompass it, no matter how much we talk about it. It's because it's not really about the sin of sex, Lord, or it's not really about sexual impurity. It's about the state of our hearts. It's about a knowledge and understanding of who you are, and it's so much bigger than we can grasp. I feel like we're just scratching at the surface, still trying to look inside to understand how big you are and how amazing you are both in your love and in the fear that we should have for you. In your grace, Lord, and also in the ways that you command us to actually do things after we accept your salvation. Lord, I'm bewildered. I'm confused sometimes as I stare at the scriptures, trying to understand exactly where I am in your plan. But Lord, I thank you that you assure us first that whoever believes in you will have eternal life. I thank you, Lord, that in belief and faith that we've accepted that. We've accepted you and we have assurance of what's to come. We have such a mess here to sort out in this time. You tell us that this world is not going to be saved. It's not going to last. And yet our instinct is to try to somehow make it better. Lord, you tell us that we will fail, that we will all fall short of the glory of God. And yet we desire not to. We keep doing it over and over. So I lay all these pieces at your feet tonight, Lord. And they are just pieces. I feel like we haven't put them together to really solve this puzzle, but we are getting closer to understanding the bare truth about our heart, about how we desire sometimes to sin against you, that we do it intentionally just because of our love for the sin. But I pray, Lord, that we would look deeper than that. We would be reminded of the fact that you dwell in our body now, that we are subjecting you to defilement when we engage in these activities. That it's not necessarily for the sin or the salvation as much, Lord, as it's the sanctity of who you are, the holiness that you are, and the commandment that you give us to be just as holy as you. 
Lord, we sit before you in a spirit of confession right now because we know that we have violated your commandments so many times, but even more egregiously, we have done so intentionally at times. I pray that you give us maturity and that your spirit counsels and helps us to grow, that it would touch those parts of our life and actually make us a new creation so that we are incapable of even the thought of intentionally moving forward in that direction. Lord, for those who have been touched in a negative way through their actions, whether it's mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, I pray that you remind us that you cast sin as far as the east is from the west and that you remember it no more. I pray, Lord, that we would take that on in a spirit of renewal and double our efforts to sin no more. I remember, Lord, that your words to all those who sin was to tell them to go and to sin no more. And I pray that we take that on as a serious commitment, that having received your forgiveness, having received new lives, having received the promise of eternity, that we would go and that we would sin no more. Lord, if it was ever possible, let your Holy Spirit help us to make those commitments. pray all these things in your name. Amen. <laughs> the question on the table is, is masturbation a sin? Um, my belief is that this issue differs widely from men and women. I don't believe that men, with rare exception, most men can masturbate without fantasizing about something or at least engage in lustful thoughts. So I think for men, it's a problem. Okay? I think that for women, it's equally a problem, but for different reasons. Um, I don't know that I can say definitively, but I think that the, the reason people try to say it's okay for women for the most part is because somehow women can divorce the fantasizing and the lustful thoughts from the physical act. My opinion is it may be that if you look at the text about being holy, being pure, that even though it may be permissible, not all things here, the edifying to the body, that I think that that may give us a, a better understanding of that Maybe just the act of sexual gratification could be problematic. I'm not going to stake my claim on that because I also know that studies show that there are healthy sides to women knowing their body really well. And it helps later in marriage. And it helps just in in a healthy self-image and understanding your own body and being able to have sexual pleasure. So I can't rule it out entirely and say that those benefits don't exist. But I don't believe that knowing your body and masturbation are the same thing. I believe that you can engage in understanding who you are and how you work physically without making this into a habit or without even making it into an outlet or a a way of getting over sexual frustration. My thought is, if we're a holy temple of God, pure, and we're supposed to be having a conversation with him while we're doing this, it's probably a little awkward. But you wouldn't have sex with your wife in front of God either, sitting in a room. Well, no. I mean, I think that is what part of the image that I sometimes think about. Like, when, 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 when I think that God is the center of my marriage, um, I have actually thought, like, God is looking down on me and my wife having sex. It's a little creepy at first to think about it that way, you know. But what else could it mean? I mean, if we're supposed to all be one, he's the center of the marriage, we're supposed to be united, and God is with us, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's a little weird, but that's only because we're just kind of creeped about sexuality and the subject of God and Jesus anyway. But in a way, I do think like, yeah, they're all up there like looking down. The angels are like, yeah, there they go again. You know, I don't know. (laughs) You know, like, dang. (laughs) 
those guys are in love. Okay, but I don't know. I mean, at least I feel I don't feel that that's shameful or sinful. Whereas I'm not so sure I feel the same way about masturbation. Even if I were to entirely take all fantasizing away out of my mind, that I'm still thinking that the angels are like, all right, one more time, you know, good. I don't think that's the same thing. Yes. I'm lust. I'm sorry. If you can't separate masturbation with lust, I mean, lust is... I think we kind of know a lustful thought when we have it. I mean, let's say we know what's clearly in the line, like you're thinking about your neighbor across the street. You know, that's probably lust, no matter how you stack it up. Um, I don't know a lot of guys who can masturbate and think about going grocery shopping, for example. And so it just doesn't work, you know? Well, I think sexual desire properly applied, properly applied, should be limited to the person that you're with, like your wife. I mean, I don't have technical de- debates with God because I'm either clearly over the line or I'm in the line. You know what I mean? So if I'm like thinking about a woman naked, I'm not kind of like thinking over like, oh, how beautiful a creature God created. I mean, it's either like I'm thinking like, hmm, or I'm not thinking about her at all. And that's why I don't, I don't know that we can start slicing these like definitions because that's, I think, what leads us into danger sometimes. You know, like our standard, remember, is to be holy. Our standard is to have not a hint of sexual impurity or impropriety. So I feel it's dangerous to walk into like, well, define that exactly. Like, you know, what exactly could that mean? Like, could you think about them this way? It's like, I don't know. I think each person knows their conscience very clearly and they know when they're over the line. Do you agree that you can lust after your wife and that's bad? I believe that it's possible to lust after your wife in a bad way, yeah. Really? Well, it's, a, it's possible, let me put it that way. If you look at your wife as an object instead of as somebody that you care about or you're looking at some, like an object to fulfill your sexual desires, that probably is an improper way that you're, you're looking at your wife. Yeah. I've heard love described really uh, specifically as looking at someone or having an image of someone and thinking, like, it's one thing to look at someone and say, like, oh, you know, there they are. Like, they're very nice looking or whatever. But lust comes in when you say, I wish I could blank. You know, like, I'd like to... I want to see there, you know. I will totally have to argue. The lust and painting bad concept of sexual desire. If you can cut off their head and and fantasize with their body alone, then you're you're then you're a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) Then he's that guy that you know. Angela, Angela, go with me for a second. Go back to Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying that you've heard that adultery is sex outside of marriage, whatever it is. But I tell you that if you even lust after another woman, that's adultery. I know we're using the word to define itself, but in that particular example, I really think that what he's clearly saying is you look at a woman lustfully, you, and it is close to sexual desire. So I'm not saying that, the, that having sexual desire by itself is a sin, but if I look at another woman and I start to imagine what she's like with her clothes off, that you may say, well, that's just part of your sexual desire. You're attracted to her. It's like, I've taken a step and mentally taken her clothes off. I think if I asked Jesus, when you were doing the Sermon on the Mount, does that count? I think he would say, absolutely. Let's just stay here till next week. What do you guys think? Well, we'll solve it all. Like, we'll just have a big think tank. By the way, if you don't know, you guys are, you guys are dismissive if you don't know that. <laughs> this is debating you on all night. Yes. I personally felt a need. I felt sexual desire. But it wasn't, it wasn't bad, and I didn't feel bad about it. Why? Because I think that, I mean, I would hope that when you get married to somebody, you do have some sort of sexual attraction to them. Of course. You know what I mean? And you have a sexual desire for them, you know? Even before you actually experience what it's going to be like, you should have that. 
I mean, that, it shouldn't, you guys shouldn't get married because you're best friends. I mean, that's, that's, that's like going to a Christian college. That's a wrong idea of getting married. You know what I mean? You need to be like, you, there needs to be some sort of desire. And yes, at times it needs to even be tempting maybe. But that's different than succumbing to it. So that's why that line is not so easy to, to, to parse. But you're dealing with a situation where let's say that I'm dating my wife and we're getting ready to get married and I'm having desires for her and I want to be with her and I'm thinking, this is good. It should be building up. So it isn't like nothing and then like honeymoon, you know, like there needs to be like a gradual buildup, right? Or even not gradual. It could go fast, but we have to hold it at a certain point until we get there. But, but if I take that same desire and apply it to somebody outside of my even relationships of any kind, now I'm transferring it into a different thing. I don't have a relationship with that woman. I don't know her. Even if I know her as a friend, it's not, that's not what our relationship is. And I'm taking it to a different level you know, and I have no intention of either getting married, getting close to marriage, pursuing her in that way. I'm just objectifying her. The last comment of the night comes Back from Monique. That's my topic. For instance, I have a lot of these girls as my students, 12, 13, you know, like junior high age, and they go through a time where it is about sort of self-discovery and just your body, and then you're done with it. Like, you don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a pattern, and you use it to, so should they feel ashamed? Should they feel awkward? Should it be taught as a sin? I'll give you a million dollars if you can answer that question. <laughs> All right. Not really. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that knowing who you are and what you're all about is okay. I think that a lot of times... That curiosity, that natural curiosity. Yeah, I think that's it's normal. I mean, you see it in children, right. you know, and even Christian counselors tell parents, even though it looks like masturbation, don't confuse that with masturbation. I mean, they're just discovering who they are. Whether it feels good or not, they're just trying to, f- they're curious. Like, don't freak out yet, you know? But as you grow up and you become more mature, and now you know who you are, I mean, that could be at any age. Let's say it's 16. Let's say it's 17. You're 18. You're a late bloomer, and you're still discovering who you are. Well, at some point, that's done. Right. And at some point, what, what, now you have to ask yourself, okay, now what am I doing? Now it's just like, you know what? I feel like I want to have sexual gratification tonight. Right. And, that's where it's and even though I can th- like think of, you know, whatever, nothing sexual. I'm thinking about the flowers and the trees. The fact, is, the fact is, I think you're doing something that I th- still think God intended to be confined in marriage, if at all, you know? And people say, yeah, you know what? If you're married, yeah, people can masturbate and mutually masturbate each other in marriage. And it's okay. Great. That's great. You're in marriage now. Now everything's okay. But to just say that because I'm not thinking lustful thoughts, sexual gratification by itself is okay to me, I, I don't feel comfortable saying that because the standard is not not being lustful. The standard is holiness. And somehow I think that people who are focused on holiness are thinking about other things than just their own sexual gratification. My girlfriend wants to know if, if you just said if masturbation is okay in marriage. Uh, yes. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Shower and masturbate by myself, or are you talking about? No, I'm talking about mutual masturbation, like people together, like discovering themselves the way that they would have oral sex or any other type of sex. Like if they just want to have sex manually, you know, that that would be okay in marriage. Now, the question of can they do that separately, that's actually up to the couple, really. A lot of counselors will tell you. For a man, it's going to be very hard to do it separately because unless he's thinking about his wife every single time, he's probably outside the line. 
But that's really up to the couple to decide because I know a lot of people who are in sexual like counseling or whatever whose counselor will tell them, you do need to do this or you need to use this like toy or something to figure this out because you have some issues you need to get over or you just need to train your body or you need to discover more about yourself. And that's what they tell them. It's like, well, you're following the person's advice. But it's a very touchy subject because this is like the one thing that like nobody wants to talk about, but it's... Thanks for talking about it, though. I'm fired, you guys. I'm so fired. <laughs> Connie, am I fired? Are you firing me?